here is just a little more on the podcast number 85 that was entitled Protestant Episcopalians in Supermarionation. And I've gotten some very interesting feedback from uh, some uh, listeners to this podcast, and it has enabled me um, to uh, put together some things that I think I had missed. And uh, the, the sort of uh, the way into this was, in fact, um, it's actually something surprisingly serious and uh, possibly elucidating. Uh, and it first came to me in reflection on uh, on Frank Capra's movie It Happened One Night with uh, Carrie, uh, with G- uh, Clark Gable and uh, Claudette Colbert. And um, you may remember at the end of that very uh, wonderful movie, there's a kind of a big uh, outdoor um, society wedding, and there's a perfectly attired Episcopal clergyman in it. And the wedding is uh, chaotically and uh, very comedically uh, interrupted at every level in favor of a happy ending when the walls of Jericho between uh, Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert finally come down on their... um, surprising and very happy ending honeymoon. And I thought um, to myself, well, now that's interesting. The Episcopalian clergyman there is properly attired. Now, how did Hollywood get that? Uh, This was the thing. How did Hollywood unerringly uh, recreate Episcopalian clergymen and Episcopalian settings en particulier? Rather than uh, it's, uh, it almost never uh, was interested in uh, uh, sort of the William Jennings Bryan world of the American heartland, but in its uh, uh, also in the Philadelphia story, as I remember at the very end, there is a uh, a society wedding on the main line that ends wonderfully and happily and upliftingly, and uh, in the end of that movie, I believe there's a properly attired Episcopalian clergyman, and um, what was going on with that? Uh, uh, something about the fact that. Hollywood, certainly in the Depression, in the golden age of its classics, um, would inevitably um, shine the light on fantasies of of upper crust um, American society, uh, Catherine Hepburn movies. There was a obviously a, a desire and a perceived need that when everyone else was down in the dumps, let's uh, illuminate and put up on the um, screen fairy tales. Um, you know, this is what is actually behind Woody Allen's movie, The Purple Rose of Cairo. In a dark time, let's put up fairy tales of what it's like on the other side of the fence, where everybody is apparently playing polo and having a grand old time. And um, when they do get married, and possibly even when the right people get married to the right people, storyline-wise, there's an Episcopalian clergyman, dear Dr. So-and-so. It's almost always dear Dr. So-and-so. And then my mind went, um, if you'll bear with me, if you like the first podcast on Super Marionette, Uh, Bear with me. I think something is coming. Um, You may remember another movie that Frank Capra uh, happens to have directed of a Broadway play that was called Arsenic and Old Lace. And in this comedy that stars um, Raymond Massey as a kind of Frankenstein character and um, also, um, golly, uh, it stars uh, Peter Lorre's in it and uh, uh, it has uh, Cary Grant, that... um, the uh, aunts, the aunt of uh, the hero, 
um, has devised a system of, of poisoning, uh, primarily visiting clergymen, lovely Dr. Grantley, so to speak, lovely Dr. So-and-so, dear Mr. So-and-so. And these lovely clergymen come to call, and they uh, appear to the aunts, uh, played by that wonderful actress who I think got a, a, an Oscar for her role in Harvey later on, or at least a nomination, Josephine Hall. Does that ring a bell? Anyway, they um, these women uh, decide to poison very uh, without any um, pain. They think uh, visiting clergymen because they want to. They 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 love these dear m- men and they want to sort of put them out of their misery and and bury them downstairs. And then crazy, you know, the crazy nephew uh, who thinks it's down in the uh, their uh, yellow fever victims down on the uh, um, down on the Panama Canal who thinks he's. Uh, um, um, Theodore Roosevelt buries all these clergymen and the pictures of the clergymen and there's one actual scene I think too uh, they're just archetypal Episcopal uh, clergymen dear nice uh, they look like Irving Stone avuncular kindly um, uh, probably married, but that doesn't come into it. Um, but definitely not Roman Catholic priests. They're always uh, nice, dear. At, at, at the lowest, they're Methodists. At the highest, they're Episcopalian rectors. Now, I thought about that in the way they're dressed. Now, that's the same kind of playing on something. Um, now, the, the, what is uh, going on with this, which we find finally in supermarionation in that really uh, extraordinary once-off uh, television show from England called Secret Service, in which even though Father Unwin is called Father by an Irish-sounding uh, housekeeper, um, he is nevertheless clearly the vicar of his local Church of England parish in Berkshire, and uh, a dear and lovely and canny and marvelous character played by a puppet who um, always ends up the little segments for a half hour for the children's show, uh, which Jerry and... Uh, uh, Sylvia Anderson did later on, moving on to much bigger things. Uh, he always is preaching a sermon in Protestant visuals and Protestant robes. Um, now, in the American context, it occurred to me another reason there are so many of these characters, uh, and because the spotlight falls on the Episcopal clergyman, because the spotlight falls on the fable of some kind of wasp, um, polo playing, um, upper echelon Philadelphia dream of uh, of the unknown perfect and uh, so no wonder these settings are filmed again and again in Hollywood and to some extent uh, in uh, in England where you have the dear and lovely vicar at best not since the 60s not since uh, Secret Service. Um, in ideal terms, the, the dear and relatively usually benign, if not uh, utterly innocent of reality, uh, rector, um, at his best is, is seen as a, a fatherly figure, even in Village of the Damned, by the way, that wonderful um, British early 60s science fiction domestic drama. Now, what does this say? This says something, I think, that may be of interest. Uh, it says that in the mind of the people, especially American people, seeing Hollywood productions of these uh, glorified types over the fence of the estate who were having a very marvelous uh, life, it was thought, in a fabulous manner. You and I know better. Nobody's different, really. Everybody has sorrows. You got my troubles, I got mine. Isn't that a song? Uh, I was listening to a Dickie Betts song. I think it's called Good Time Feeling, um, wonderful Dickie Betts song from the 70s somewhere. And he says, 
I've got my troubles just like you. I think the song is called uh, um, Good Time Feeling. That's right. I've got my troubles just like you. I mean, everybody has troubles, whether they're a hot shot or whether they're not. But the, um, the fantasy vision was that these people didn't. And because they were these people, you put your religious or your church aspect of it, and there it was. It was the very uh, beautifully attired uh, uh, vicar in... Um, uh, in the, uh, the the Episcopalian, who was low church, that is, he was very clear to be distinguished from a Catholic priest, for example. You might see one of those in a John Ford movie about Irish Catholics. But um, you, you see it, by the way, and it's actually in The Quiet Man, where the local Anglican vicar is a deer, has no congregation, but is a deer, and he's to be... Uh, uh, paralleled with Ward Bond as the Roman Catholic vicar who really runs the show. Um, but the, always the picture that um, this is the other side, and um, I mean, there are so many examples of this. You'll see another example in um, Shadow of a Doubt by Alfred Hitchcock at the end where the uh, Episcopal rector, he might be a Presbyterian pastor. I don't think he's a Methodist because he's dressed too well in the context of the time. Remember, One Foot in Heaven was with Frederick March, and Frederick March clearly at the opening of that movie, One Foot in Heaven, which is on TCM about once every eight weeks, uh, he clearly differentiates when he receives the call to the ministry. He differentiates between the Episcopalians who really, in a sense, don't need him, and that's a different type of cut of people. He wants to minister to, to regular, everyday people, so he clearly and explicitly becomes a Methodist minister. Um, but but uh, in uh, a shadow of a doubt, the 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 uh, uh, rector who gets it all wrong about Uncle Charlie, the Joseph Cotton, uh, uh, what we today call a serial killer of rich widows, um, the rector gets it all wrong, and he proceeds to give an extraordinarily absurd lollipop sermon at the very end that McDonald Carey and Teresa Wright overhear, and they realize that it it has bears no resemblance to the reality of the undercurrent of life that is under the rock of this Santa Mira, whatever it is, uh, uh, San Rafael. Um, I've been there, Santa Rosa, uh, California. So you see the vicar again getting it wrong, but he is the type when you see the way he's dressed and his wife is there too. Now, what uh, this says is not only that you can really get a picture of how Episcopalian clergy were understood and understood themselves in that era. And when I said there were 80 to 90 uh, appearances, I, I suspect that's probably not too far from the truth because so incorrigible was the need to to make uh, a fantastic picture of something that was wonderful and yet far, far above the station and the pay grade of most people watching the these uh, movies like um, um, even Bringing Up Baby, for that matter, but that's in a different cat class. Um, it was so way above. Oh, by the way, you see it also in the wonderful Episcopalian rector in uh, John Ford's movie um, Judge Priest, where Henry Walthall, is it? I'm not sure if that's the one who plays him. But uh, the uh, uh, clergyman in the small Kentucky town is clearly an Episcopalian clergyman. He was, he was a colonel in the Confederate Army. He's dressed beautifully. He looks like a retired Confederate colonel, but he's handsome as he can be. He's extremely patrician, and everybody listens to everything he says, and with absolute every single word is regarded as credible in the small Paducah, Kentucky town where uh, Judge Priest is played out, and the Episcopal rector receives such credit, but there he is. He's clearly the Episcopal rector as opposed to um, the, the parson of any number of other um, 
possible denominations. Well, um, what does this really say to me today? Well, it, it says a great deal, um, first about how things have changed, and you can really draw some very amusing and delighted sort of pictures of, of how things were prior to 1979. But I want to add one little slightly more somber reflection on this. Um, I was reading the other day about a, an Episcopal church somewhere in uh, in eastern Pennsylvania that's having a terribly hard time, a beautiful old church building, but a declining congregation that is really having to find its way and is not at all sure, as it were, where the next meal is coming from. And there are a number of these uh, beautiful old stone Episcopal parishes in many different places, tending, tending to be in the northeast. But when I say the northeast, I'm sort of speaking from Delaware to Nashua. Uh, and uh, certainly we find the same in uh, Chicago and many other places, not yet so much in the south. And these um, parishes but it would extend even to the Middle Atlantic. We um, we see these beautiful old parishes closing. Uh, a parish I saw was being sold, offered for sale, the building for a ver- for a song. Um, in other words, it was uh, taking on the. Um, the sale price of other buildings of its kind in that particular part uh, or region where it was located. And these are very sad things for someone who has loved and served the church, no matter what you may think about various contentious issues, uh, red, blue, you name it. Uh, It is a sad thing from any point of view. And it really um, says something, and it just occurred to me, I lay this thought out, I put this thought out, and then I'm going to stop, uh, is um, our mainstream churches, denominations like this, and especially these old Episcopal churches, and what, what really connected the dots is someone commented on one of these um, accounts of a beautiful old church of fading and having terrible time now keeping its doors open and heating its building. And uh, it could be any church, it could be anywhere, but it happens to be in the, you know, the from let's say that that from, from the Potomac and North to the to Toronto to, to Montreal. But uh, this um, somebody said, well, you know, I remembered uh, 35 years ago that church, and it, whether it wanted to or not, it gave the impression this person was saying of being a church for the rich. It may not have meant to, it may not have intended to. The people there might have been horrified to consider that. that that was how it was being seen. But the impression that we had, said this woman, in the community 35, 40 years ago, was that this really was a kind of church of the rich, for the rich, and to the rich. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that really was, in fact, the way it was um, portrayed, the way it was conceived, the way it was felt. It was something you never wanted to admit, something that most people would have absolutely denied, people of goodwill, people of tremendous desire to do good in the world. These lovely old 1928 prayer book, as we call them, Episcopalians, they would not in a million years have wished to acknowledge that, and certainly they wouldn't have wished it. But there was an underlying sort of understanding that this was a kind of elitist institution, and that was the way it came in the American, uh, les tranches de the American pie, the slices of the pie, that everywhere you went, the Episcopal Church was always in that situation. I was in a town, a large southern town, uh, but a town, not a city, uh, preaching some years ago, and uh, on the 
church square, the square of the old town. This is deep south, but there was a Baptist church, there was a Methodist church, there was a Presbyterian church, and there was an Episcopal church. And it was all very clearly explained to me that that the bankers, the people who really owned the place in, in those days, still attended the Episcopal church. The doctors and some of the professional people uh, tended to uh, go to the professional, to, to the Presbyterian church. The, the average person uh, who was also a small business person and was a very solid citizen tended to go to the Methodist church and everybody else went to the uh, Baptist church. Um, And then, of course, you had the African-American churches in a different part of town. And there was no question that that was the that was the projection. And when you knew the people and I was inevitably as an Episcopalian priest speaking in the Episcopalian forum, you definitely even within yourself deep down, there was a subtle co-conspiracy of understanding that was a little bit, I guess we would call it to use a religious language, unsanctified. I I flag it in myself, and I saw it growing up. God knows I saw it growing up in so many situations. And the Episcopal Church world that James Gould Cousins describes so um, really lovingly and to some extent spiritually, oddly enough for that writer, in his 1936 book, which I've recommended so ardently in this podcast, entitled Men and Brethren, really pictures the way it was and the way it was felt. And in Men and Brethren, he contrasts Holy Innocence, the great... uh, beautiful church on uh, Park Avenue with the Mission Church of Holy Innocence called St. Ambrose, which is about six blocks to the east in the tenement area, the immigrant area. Of course, the names and the many would, things would change today, but the fundamental idea was that St. Ambrose, with its good works and its tenement immigrant community, in those days mostly German, actually German immigrants and uh, Scotch-Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants, uh, in those German immigrants primarily though, because this was Yorkville in those days, that uh, this work of St. Ambrose did not really have much uh, meaning in its on its own terms, uh, but was uh, valuable for what it did for the souls of the people who attended. Um, Holy Innocence on Park Avenue. Its ministry was more to the people and the consciences of those who attended um, Holy Innocence than it was to the actual people who lived around St. Ambrose. And by the way, this is uh, seen more and more. A number of these churches that are closing are in the Northeast and Middle Atlantic are parishes that were originally founded in the 1890s or early 20th centuries as, you might say, chapels. They were chapels of the more established uh, sort of uh, the bishop's wife type of big church, St. Timothy and the Bishop's Wife. That's the church in the Robert Nathan novel, which was the cardinal parish of the so-called upper echelon. And they, in their goodness, established a work uh, to those who were in a different, less fortunate status. And all was well meant. Uh, Grace Church, where I served for six and a half years in New York City, had established in long, long ago a beautiful church uh, in, um, in, um, golly, uh, in... uh, on 14th Street, which still exists. It's the church where um, that wonderful Lutheran who became the editor of uh, First Things uh, became a Roman Catholic priest and was established there from his Lutheranism. But in the 30s, when the Depression hit, Grace Church could no longer support and fully bankroll, which it had done out of generosity and great earnest 
um, eleemosynary interests, it could no longer support the chapel, Grace Chapel on 14th Street, and it was sold to the Roman Catholics and is now, by the way, a, a fairly thriving inner city church with tremendous facilities. And there, if you go into the church as one does, and by the way, the clergyman is Father Richard Newhouse, you go into that church and it is an Episcopal church, a barn of an Episcopal church, but which is now uh, a fully uh, enrolled Roman Catholic parish with even had a gym and a swimming pool. Yeah, it was a great community outreach center, just as St. George's Church on Stevenson Square established similar outreaches throughout the Lower East Side and Trinity Church, Wall Street did, and all the great parishes, what used to be called the prominent parishes. Uh, now that very word in itself, which was in currency until the, the late 70s, um, there we have it. So what is probably actually happening in the uh, terrible um, news of uh, ancient parishes, by my standards, closing one after another after another, and this is not an exaggeration, when it, when it catches up with the laypersons, it is a great surprise. This is not, by the way, about um, contested issues of social values. It is not about political questions in the church that have been so divisive on the, uh, on the left and on the right and in the middle. It is really about um, old churches that had no desire to get involved in political issues, and were most of them liberal, quote, end of quote, and very open and diverse and tolerant and inclusive, and were not at all on the right end, or necessarily, some you might have said were more to the left, but most of them were very well-meaning churches of people who, when push comes to shove, are trying to continue to uh, keep something going that their grandmother and grandfather and dad and loved and worked in and uh, was part of, and they themselves sang in the choir. And I've served, by the way, these parishes. It's not, uh, I've served parishes of all sorts, including exactly this kind of parish that was a spinoff from some more established parish. And uh, these parishes are having a terribly difficult time today. Many of them are merging. Many of them are closing. Many of them, I was just up somewhere and I saw beside uh, a beautiful old church of this kind, an Episcopalian church, that I would love to see brought back. I saw a uh, for sale sign. Uh, it emerged with another uh, parish nearby. Now, this is not ultimately a response, God's judgment, uh, although uh, it may in one ultimate sense be karmatic, but I don't want to say that. Who's to say that? Who can I say that? Uh, who am I? Who's any of us to say that? It may well be ultimately, but it may be if it is judgment on anything or any attitude, it may in fact be a judgment on uh, the understanding that was very real but seldom stated, but you certainly projected and certainly understood by others, and perhaps at a certain level sinfully enjoyed by those who were part of it. Uh, it may in fact be a relevant factor that ultimately the Christian religion at its core cannot finally coexist with any form of elitism of any kind, whether it's theological elitism, social elitism, economic elitism, whether it is educational elitism, whether it is um, an ideological elitism of, um, you know, of today, or whether it is a uh, orthodox elitism of uh, yesterday, whether it is an elitism of liturgy, uh, of aesthetic elitism, of art artistic elitism, of uh, disallowed elitism, and kind of the elitism that rebels can sometimes uh, wrap themselves in, uh, or uh, any kind of authoritarian. I mean, you any form of selectivity that is human is going to be at one level or a not arbitrary, and it's going to close somebody out.
It, it may close the, the right people out. It may, it may throw out the bastards. Uh, but who's to ultimately say that you might not yourself be a bastard? You know, who isn't? Who, which of us is guiltless, to quote Bishop George Bell? Uh, let me say another thing. Um, please read Kerouac's Some of the Dharma, especially the last sort of two-thirds. The first part is sort of very, there's an awful lot of Indian spirituality that is more specific than he ultimately meant. But the last third of it is very good. And at one point he says, never fight City Hall. It is always changing its name. In other words, never never fight whoever's currently in power because whoever's currently in power changes. The, the view of life that is in power when Frank Capra created his remarkable and wonderful and delightful and affectionate and feel-good movie, It Happened One Night, is not the group who are on the other side of the fence uh, tomorrow. I was in England, and it was so interesting to to be lectured very clearly by someone who said, well, she said, he, he said, uh, or they said, whoever this person is, um, very well-meaning, um, all the people who run uh, the BBC and run England right now, all the Rupert Murdoch puppets, I mean, this is before all the uh, hackgate happened, they all live north of the A40 or something, something like that. Uh, they all live in a section of the Cotswold. The people who run England uh, live in a, who have run the big institutions, media and government and so forth in London, their weekend houses are all north of a certain artery in the Cotswolds. And the person was basically saying, we who live south of that artery don't have to deal with them. But then someone said, oh no, but Rebecca Brooks lives south of it. You know, so you, you had, in other words, the elite uh, today in any place is still the elite, even if it looks different, sounds different, was educated differently and has different presuppositions, it still is an elite. The elites change, and uh, it'll be different tomorrow. The people who run our world today uh, or the world you live in today will be a different group tomorrow and a different group tomorrow and a different group tomorrow. The point is not who's in power. The fact is that it's constantly changing. And Kerouac said, remember this, um, never fight City Hall. It's always changing its name. Well, um, my little suspicion is that the fate being visited on so many well-meaning um and really very ought to survive and thrive faith communities locally in this country today may ultimately lie in not some form of hyper-conservatism or some form of intolerance which is being judged, and intolerance is always judged, nor on some form of heterodoxy um, and um, heresy that is being judged. It may not be any of those things. Uh, I'm really much more um, convinced looking at Hollywood uh, not to mention uh, sort of uh, uh, something that may take the flavor of something so innocent and wonderful as Secret Service, but supermarination is great. Uh, it may be, in fact, that uh, Cousins was deeply onto something when he portrayed Christchurch Brockton and uh, the uh, rector, Mr. Trowbridge, uh, or in his own desire, Father Trowbridge. He did not like to be called Mr. Trowbridge, although everyone called him that. He very much wanted to be called Father, but fortunately he had an, he had an earned PhD so he could be called Doctor, and that settled the day. And he and his wife were so earnestly desiring to bring their form of Anglo-Catholicism to this bunch of elitist uh, liberals in Christchurch Brockton in 1957. But what it does say is that there's a form of elitist one way or other, whichever way you slice it. And that is the question that I raise. Uh, And it's probably something that um, I needed to ask myself long ago. Was I in some kind of internal 
eternal, quiet, self-satisfied, and ultimately self-righteous kind of inner alignment with a self-understanding that actually had more to do with elitism and superiority than the very remarkable affirmation that uh, Christianity ultimately at its best offers the world, where we read, and here is a statement from a man who I think was generally free of any kind of uh, malice or elitism in this way, and it was happened to be Paul Moore's greatest uh, loved him, and I feel myself that Paul Moore uh, actually probably had a better uh, line on all this, despite his supposedly and actually rich background. He may have had a handle on this in some way that is uh, very important and may ultimately, despite all the books written about him, at least the hymn says something. Cancel the person. Let's look at the hymn. In Christ there is no east or west, in him no south or north, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. In him meet true hearts everywhere, their high communion find. Their service is the golden cord, close binding all mankind. Golly, I didn't mean to end on that note, but uh, I did. And I give you love and send you love. God bless you all. Bye.